It has been an unusual privilege to share in the Philadelphia Conference on Reformed Theology during these days, and I want to express my own deep gratitude for the fellowship and the warmth of Christian love which has marked our coming together. It has been also a very great joy for me to get to know Dr. and Mrs. Boyce, and may I say to have the very special highlight in my visit to America of staying in their home and with their family. I thank God for these days, and I'm sure many of us have found our hearts thrilled as we have considered together some of these great themes of the Christian gospel, of how the Holy Spirit applies to us as God's people, the redemption that he has accomplished for us in Jesus Christ. And we come to the seventh of these great themes this morning. We have looked over the weekend together at the way in which the Spirit of God does apply the inestimable and immeasurable benefits of Christ's work to the lives of his people. By uniting us to Christ in a union which is eternal and spiritual, that was the theme of Friday evening, then by regenerating us and making us new creatures in Christ and bringing us to a personal faith in and commitment to the Lord Jesus, that was our theme of yesterday morning, then by justifying us freely by his grace and clothing us in the righteousness of Christ so that we are assured that there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus and adopting us into all the privileges of his family. That was the theme of yesterday afternoon. And then we thought last night about how God sets about changing us into his image in the process we call sanctification. All of this is the Holy Spirit's work in applying the benefits of Christ's death to us. And we have surely been amazed and bowed before God at the wonder of all his works. I'm sure that's one of the reasons that the singing has been so remarkable at this conference. One way to get great singing is to ponder on the great glories of redemption. And I have so much appreciated that and the music which has stimulated us to sing like that this week. But when we turn to consider this morning the fact that glorious as all these mighty works of God's grace are, we find that there is something altogether defying our understanding, that God has something yet for us so surpassingly wonderful that our finite minds could not begin to contain it, that he has set before us a hope which is so glorious that all that he has done for us before, in a sense, is only a prelude to what he yet has to do for us in the day of our glorification. Then I tell you, only heaven is a fit place to sing the songs of the Lamb of God that we shall want to sing in that day. Christian salvation, you see, has three tenses. It refers to the past and to the present 
and to the future. And all of these derive from the saving work of our Lord Jesus Christ, and they all deal with some aspect of the spoliation that sin has brought into the world. The first in the past is salvation from sin's guilt and penalty. The second refers to the present and is salvation from sin's power and dominion. And the third refers to the future, and it is salvation from sin's very presence. The first, roughly speaking, is justification. The second is sanctification. And the third is glorification. And it is this future dimension of Christian experience which is our theme this morning. And I want to suggest to you a somewhat neglected theme amongst Christian people. And in order to find the biblical perspective on it, I want to turn with you to that eighth chapter of the Epistle to the Romans, part of which you will find printed in our worship bulletin. Here in the middle of Romans chapter 8, the Apostle is encouraging the saints at Rome by the glories of the ministry of the Holy Spirit in bearing witness to our sonship in Christ. In verses 15 and 16, he says, We have received the spirit of sonship, halfway through verse 15, when we cry, Abba, Father, it is the Spirit himself bearing witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. Now, as we were discovering, there are endless present privileges in being God's children. It is the miracle of God's infinite mercy that he has taken us, who were by nature children of wrath, and raised us into the unspeakable glory of being adopted children of God. You will notice that God has only one begotten Son by nature, but he has made us his adopted sons and daughters by grace, and he has raised us into the same privileges by grace that our Lord Jesus Christ enjoys in the presence of the Father by nature. And this is what the apostle is glorying in. And to these hard-pressed saints at Rome, he says, Ponder this, my brothers and sisters. Ponder what it means to be sons and daughters of God, to have access to him, to know yourself accepted in, in the beloved, brought into the Father's presence and under the smile of his love and into the privileges of being his children. But, says Paul, great and wonderful as these privileges are, there is something even more wonderful than that, and that is the future prospects of the children of God. And he leads us into that theme in verse 17 in just four words in the Revised Standard Version. If children, then heirs. That's the future prospect that Paul is taken up with, and that is one of the great issues of our redemption. It is the prospects that lie before us. People are constantly asking in Britain these days when they're looking for a job, what are the prospects? What are the prospects of this? Where is the future? What kind of hope is there for me? 
People leaving university are so often going into dead-end jobs because of our economic situation. And the great cry is, what are the prospects? Now, beloved, that's one of the great questions about life. It doesn't matter who you are this morning. One of the great issues are, is, what are the prospects? What of the future? What does it hold? Because life is not going to go on forever. That's one of the fond dreams that modern man lives in. That life is just going to go careering on forever and ever in some strange kind of perpetual dream. But it is not going to do that. And the great issue we face is, what are the prospects? Now that is a question the Christian gospel answers in a way that nothing in the world can answer similarly. And Paul is taken up with it. Part of the implication, you see, of being a child of God is that by virtue of your sonship in Christ, there is a glorious inheritance beyond all description which God has laid up for his children. And when the Holy Spirit bears witness to your sonship when you cry, Abba, Father, he is at the same time bearing witness because you cannot divide the two to the fact that you are an heir of God and a joint heir with Jesus Christ and that the prospects are infinitely glorious for the people of God. And Paul wants to expound this to us. An heir of God and a joint heir with Jesus Christ. You find the same juxtaposition of thought in the first letter of John chapter 3 and verse 2 where the apostle having gloried similarly in our sonship, beloved, he says, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us to call us sons of God and this we are. But he says, Now are we the children of God. And it does not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Now the point of these verses 18 to 25 or so in Romans 8 is to press upon the Christians to whom Paul is writing that there is always a not yet about the Christian's life in this world. And that's an important thing for us to grasp. This is why Paul reminds us in verse 24 that we are saved in hope. You see, the full description of Christian salvation is not simply that we are saved by grace through faith. That is true and glorious. But that is only part. In a sense, it's only the beginning of Christian salvation. The full description of it is we are saved by grace through faith, in hope. And you haven't begun to see the Christian gospel in all its fullness if you omit that glory. And that means, you see, that while our trust is in the finished work of Christ, and while we may sing about having full salvation here in this world, there is another sense in which full salvation is still to come. And for the Christian, the best is yet to be. May I say to you that in the long term, that is really what distinguishes the Christian from the ungodly man without Christ, 
for whom the worst is yet to come. But for the child of God, the best is yet to be. For the last act in the drama of redemption is still to be performed when God shall appear in the person of his Son in an infinite glory, when he shall wind up the affairs of this bankrupt world and hold his last assize and call all mankind to appear before his judgment and raise the dead and judge the living, and Jesus shall come in his glory and God shall make the last move in his mighty work of redemption and it's still to come. That is why there is still in this veil of tears of which we speak so many tensions. There are so many battles and struggles in our Christian experience. It is one of the great mistakes we make in pretending to young Christian people especially that the Christian life is one long picnic where you just float to heaven on flowery beds of ease and the skies are never clouded, I began to think. They never were in the United States when I came first, but it's just the same as Scotland this morning. But, you know, we can pretend that the Christian life is like that, beloved, that the skies never cloud over in its perpetual sunshine. But I tell you, because we are living here in the interim period between our salvation having been begun and the glory being consummated, we live in the tension of this present age where we groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption, even the redemption of our bodies. And in his infinite grace, God has spoken to us about this, that we might learn that here we have no continuing city. Here we wait, we wait, as those who are strangers and pilgrims with their citizenship elsewhere and their treasure elsewhere too. And we wait for the day, the day dawning. We are like men who watch for the dawning of a new day. And that's the picture of the Christian. Now Paul's immediate practical purpose in urging this truth upon the believers at Rome is, you will see, to give them a proper view of their present sufferings and trials. What he calls in verse 18 the sufferings of this present time. I consider, he says, that the sufferings of this present time, for they are going through them. They are experiencing what it is to be in the midst of trial and pressure and tribulation. Ah, but, says the apostle, they are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Now, Paul's concern is not to minimize the reality of the sufferings and trials of believers. Rather, he weighs them up accurately and reckons with the full force of them. But he says there is something else to be reckoned with, and this is how a Christian is to view the whole picture of suffering in this present world. And that other thing that is to be weighed up is the glory God is preparing for you if you are his child. And that is so surpassingly wonderful that the present sufferings cannot even be compared with it. 
Now, it's significant that the connection between suffering and glory is not just that the glory is a compensation for the suffering you have suffered in this present time, but the glory is so great it's a kind of compensation prize. It actually grows out of the suffering for the believer as well as for the Lord. Do you notice 2 Corinthians 4, Paul expresses the same thought, our light affliction, he says, having spoken of all this tremendous pressure that he has been under in the early chapters of 2 Corinthians, he says, our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Tribulation worketh. That's what the apostle teaches. And his point is that both the suffering and the glory derive from our union with Christ. Do you notice in verse 17 of chapter 8, there are three words which have the Greek prefix of sharing. We are heirs together with him, fellow heirs with Christ, the RSV translates it. We suffer together with him, we are glorified together with him. Now all three of these are the outcome of our union with Christ. And they are all evidence that we are united with Christ. Our suffering with Christ is an evidence of our union with him. And the ultimate evidence of our union with Jesus is that we shall be glorified together with him. The glory flows out of the suffering, and the suffering is a guarantee, as it were, of the glory that is to come. Now, there are three questions we need to ask about this glorification. When will it take place? That's the first one. The second, what is this glory which shall be revealed in us? Are we able as mortals to understand it? And thirdly, what difference should it make to ordinary Christian people like ourselves, many of us going back into the daily work to which God has called us, and some of us into difficult situations, what difference should this doctrine make to us? Let me raise with you the first of these questions. When will this glorification take place? Well, we have a key to the answer to it in two places. First of all, in the phrase, the sufferings of this present time, in verse 18. Now, as Professor John Murray points out, this is not simply a way of saying for the time being. That is, the suffering is for the time being. We are having sufferings just now, but we will have glory later. It is, in fact, almost a technical term expressing the present age in contrast with the age which is to come, which will be ushered in by the return of Christ. It is the age of the resurrection of the body, and that is the day when the glory will be revealed, the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ and the glory of his people, because their glory will be his glory. And you see what the apostle is saying. He is saying that time is bisected, as it were, by the coming of Christ, and the age between Christ's first coming and his, his second coming is this present time. But the future is going to be bisected also by the coming of Christ in glory. And that will usher in the new age, the age which is to come. 
So Paul is speaking to the believers concerning their suffering in this present age. But he says, look to the age which is to come. Now that age is marked, not you will notice, by our death, but by the coming again of Christ in glory. The other clue to what the timing the apostle is speaking of is, is in verses 19 to 23, where Paul enlarges the whole concept of suffering and glory to include the entire creation in this amazing and wonderful passage where he speaks of the created universe as involved both in the present suffering and in the future glory of the people of God. And it is an amazing picture and one we too seldom think of that creation, that is clearly the subhuman creation the apostle is speaking of, shared in man's curse at the fall. As we read in Genesis chapter 3 verse 17, for example, Cursed is the ground because of you, thorns and thistles it shall bring forth to you. And there is this great doctrine in the scripture which Paul is expounding here, that the creation is itself under judgment, that the fall of man was not just a fall of humanity, it was the fall of the whole created order. And something happened that brought the whole creation in bondage to what Paul calls futility and decay. So that the creation is groaning and travailing together, waiting for the liberation of the glory of the people of God. The creation is pictured, you see, in all sorts of ways in Scripture. And we need to grasp this. There are signs of the reality of what Paul is speaking about in all sorts of ways. In the minor note that runs through the whole of the created order, which is not as it was when God formed it and saw that it was all very good. We see the whole process of decay within creation. We see nature, as we say, red in tooth and claw, the ugly cruelty of nature. We see what the poets have grasped as the melancholy murmur of the waves, the sighing of the wind. There is this groaning through the whole of creation, and it is raising a kind of symphony which speaks of the groaning of the people of God waiting for that day for the liberty of the glory of God's children. And you see, when the day of our Lord Jesus appearing arrives, the creation will be involved in this. Not just us as God's people, there will be a new heaven and a new earth wherein righteousness will dwell. The trees of the field shall clap their hands. The leaves of the tree of life shall be for the healing of the nations. And the animate creation will, will share in it too. Do you remember how Isaiah prophesies that the wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the kid? They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And you see how the apostle describes in verse 19 the whole creation waiting with eager longing. None of the translations really gets this properly, you know. It's the picture of a man standing on tiptoe. You know the kind of thing that people do if you're waiting for somebody to arrive at a station, for example, and there are crowds of people there. Especially, I've noticed this 
And let me testify, I have known it in my own experience, when somebody is waiting for his fiancé coming in a crowd along a station platform, and he's on tiptoe, peering over people waiting, and then he catches the glimpse of it. Or it's like people waiting on tiptoe for the dawning of a new day, as men who wait for the morning, the psalmist cries. This is what creation is pictured like. Can you grasp this? This cosmic dimension to redemption. That the whole creation is standing on tiptoe, groaning, waiting for the liberation of the glory of the people of God. And that's what it will be. And the whole creation will be involved in it. Oh, beloved, this is no small hole in a corner thing that we are involved in, you know. When the redeeming grace of God comes to a man's life, it's not a small thing. It's not something that takes place in a corner. It's not something that involves some small part of life. It's something that involves the entire creation. And oh, how we should have our hearts set on that day, walking through this world as men and women who eagerly, like the creation itself, which is here teaching us a lesson, wait for the day of God. And then, my word, the world will know what the significance of its creation is. When the Lord in glory shall appear, and we shall be glorified with him. Now, let me say again that that is not just the day of our death. That will be an entering into glory in one sense. And a glorious thing. It is far better, says the apostle, to depart and be with Christ. And as my elderly mother often says, when she is now in her middle eighties, sudden death, sudden glory. And it's true, of course, sudden glory is what the people of God experience at death. The shorter catechism, which of course, as good reformed people, you will all know says the souls of believers are at death made perfect in holiness and do immediately pass into glory. Now for those of us who have loved ones in glory, that is a glorious hope. But I want to say to you simply that it is not the end of the hope. It's just the beginning of it, really. The Christian hope does not focus, you see, on the immortality of the soul but on the resurrection of the body. That's what the Christian hope focuses on. And that is associated with Christ's appearing again. The blessed hope, says the apostle in Titus 2.13, is the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. And our inward groaning in verse 23 of Romans 8 which matches the creation, not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we, are, we wait for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. You see, there is a last stage in our adoption, as it were, that is still to come. Well, then, that is the day of glory. It is the day of Christ's return, the day of his appearing, the day of his unveiling. The Bible uses all these words, the unveiling, the apocalypsis, the revelation of the Lord Jesus.
But what is this glory which shall be revealed and revealed in us? Have you got that? Revealed in you if you are God's child this morning. What is it? Well, I've said already that since our glorification will be glorification with Christ, it will be his glory we shall share. We really don't have any line, as Bishop Ryle often used to say, talking of this kind of thing. We have no line to fathom the depths of this. But this glory is the glory of the Lord Jesus given to the believer. That's what he spoke of when he was praying to his father in John 17. The glory which thou hast given me, I have given them. Now, it's in that sense, you see, that sanctification and glorification are joined together. He has given this glory to us, and the Holy Spirit is here and now changing us from one degree of glory into another. Holiness is glory begun below. Glorification is holiness completed above, and it belongs together, as it were. All the glory of the believer is the Lord Jesus Christ. And in that day, all the glory of the believer, of the Lord Jesus, will be the believers. Have you got that? This is where we really ought to do what the psalmist says and say, Selah, pause and think about that. All the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ will be the believers. Now, we are able to take in a few glimpses, perhaps, of this here and there in Scripture, for there are some places where his glory breaks through. But you know, of course, that while he was here on earth, his glory was veiled. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, but sometimes that glory broke through, and it's significant to see how it is described. Have you ever noticed it? Peter and James and John caught a glimpse of that glory, for example, on the Mount of Transfiguration, and in Matthew 17, 2, the gospel records it in this way. Peter speaks of it elsewhere, with bated breath, we beheld his majesty, he says, on the holy mount, but the gospel says his face shone like the sun. That's the only description they could have. A blinding glory like the sun. And Paul caught a glimpse of it as he tells Agrippa in Acts 26:13. At midday, when the sun was at its height on the Damascus road, suddenly the heavens, as it were, opened, and the living God spoke to him and arrested him. And what happened? Well, it was Jesus. Who art thou, Lord? I am Jesus, he says. Now, he says, Agrippa, let me tell you what it was like. It's almost beyond description. But let me tell you, his face was like the sun, shining in strength. And John the Apostle caught a glimpse of it. A light from heaven is what Paul says, brighter than the sun. And John in Revelation 1.16 speaks of the one when heaven opened, he saw his glory, and it was like the sun shining. Now that's the Lord Jesus' glory. It's all that we can grasp, you know, in this world, the brightness of the glory of the sun 
But do you recollect how Jesus speaks of the end of the age when he is interpreting the parable of the tares? The heavens, he says, when the harvest will be the close of the age, then when the heavens open, the righteous shall shine forth as the sun. The glory of the Lord Jesus will be the glory of his people. And to that day we look with a sure and steadfast hope when we shall be raised into new bodies and delivered from the very presence and stain of sin and freed from all its foul appurtenances and liberated to that consummation of all that our Lord Jesus has done when the glory of the Savior appears in us. And that will be something infinitely more wonderful than man in his innocent state in the garden when he bore the image of God, we shall bear the blinding glory of Jesus. Now, finally, let me briefly ask, what does such a glorious doctrine as this do for us as ordinary Christian people? Let me suggest three things to you and then I finish. It puts, first of all, meaning into history. This whole prospect of the people of God and the whole prospect of creation and the prospect of history involved in it is something that puts meaning into history for Christian people. History, you see, is not cyclical. It is not simply going round in circles. It is linear. It is moving towards a day that God has appointed for the end of the age and the ushering in of his glory, so that history, with all that is happening in the modern world, bewildering to us in so many ways, but I tell you the one person who can make sense out of history is the Christian, because he knows that history is going somewhere. It is marching relentlessly onward to the day of God, and you and I are marching with it in the whole world. It tells us that God has not abdicated his throne, that he is directing the course of the age on till the day of his Son, when in that day the Lamb will be all the glory. It puts meaning into history. It puts heart into the sufferer. That's the second thing. Because, you see, all the tribulations and trials of this present world are instruments in the hand of God to produce a glory in us beyond all comparison. These present groanings, indeed, are described by the apostle as birth pangs in creation. We know that the whole creation has been groaning and travailed together until now, and not only the creation, but we ourselves groan within ourselves. Do you see this picture? He says our very sufferings are to be understood as a special kind of suffering. It is the suffering of travail. Now, do you see the new dimension this brings into our Christian experience of suffering and trial and tribulation? It's not the meaningless pain that some suffering is. 
it is the productive pain of travail. And out of that the glory will come. I remember hearing some years ago of a missionary who had been going through a great time of darkness and trial in his own spiritual life, profound battle and distress and pressure. And he went out for a walk to get away from other people one day and went into the bush and saw as he passed by something that caught his attention. It was the chrysalis of a butterfly on a branch struggling to get out. As you may know, the butterfly does when it's at that stage. And as he watched it, it struggled and struggled and there was a tribulation going on within this thing. And he watched the butterfly beginning to appear and there was some measure of its evidence there and it began to struggle out and out a bit more and one of the wings began to appear and then it went back in again. And then the striving and the trembling and the struggling and he took his penknife out of his pocket and he carefully slit up the chrysalis, having mercy on it. And the creature opened out. A poor, deformed, broken thing. And he discovered that day that it was the tribulation which put glory into the thing. Can you see your trials and tribulations that way? It puts meaning and heart into life. That's why the apostle is able to say, you see, we know that in everything God works for good. All things are working together in the hands of this God who is our future in his keeping. All things work together for good. Now that's not just a text that appears as a kind of quieting, comforting word from God. It derives from this glorious theological consideration that the apostle gives to us that those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. Says Spurgeon, brethren, there is no stopping this God. And once he has started this work within you, through tribulation and trial and whatever, your glorification is, is as secure as your justification. Because God never leaves unfinished symphonies. He always takes his work on to its glorious completion. That's what puts heart into the sufferer. But it also puts hope into living because for the child of God the best is yet to be. There was an old Welsh couple of whom I knew who lived in a little broken down house in a Welsh valley and their son was a very wealthy architect who had done very well in the city and began to make plans for his parents old age and he used to come down when he was free and spread before them on the table the blueprint of this beautiful little bungalow that he was having built for them by the seaside for their ultimate retirement 
And the old couple, because the father had worked on until he was in his seventies, they used to hear from the son of this, and their eyes used to light up because she had worked so hard in this poor, broken-down home. And as people came in and he left the blueprint with them, they used to say to, her, you, to them, you must see what our son has prepared for us. And they would spread the blueprint out there and tell them, this is where that's going to be, and this is where that's going to be, and we'll have the little garden there, and then Daddy will be able to go out down to the beach in the morning. And the old lady turned round to one of the visitors one day, and she said, do you know, sometimes we actually think we are living there now. So it is with those of us who here have no continuing city, but we seek one which is to come. We seek a city whose builder and maker is God, a city with foundations. Dear old John Owen speaks of that incident at Bethsaida. Do you remember when our Lord Jesus touches the blind man's eyes? And he sees a parable in it. You remember how the blind man was touched in his eyes by Jesus. And Jesus said to him, do you see anything? He said, yes, a little, but not very clearly. I see men as trees walking. And then Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him again. And he saw all things clearly. And Owen says, the first touch is grace. The second touch is glory. And beloved, however glorious may be our experience of our Lord Jesus in this world, however our hearts may have been lifted up in these days with the infinite joys of our Redeemer, we wait for the second touch. And that will be joy unspeakable and full of glory. Let us pray. Lord, you are a great God, and there is none beside you. And we marvel at all the wonders of your ways and the mysteries of your grace. And we look to that day and pray that there may not be one of us here this morning who may not be joined to the Lord Jesus Christ and look to the day of his coming with joy. Oh, lift up our hearts today, we pray, and fill us with the hope of glory for Christ, our mighty Redeemer's sake. Amen.